Our lesson is from the eighth chapter of Judges as we continue in this uh, series on the judge named Gideon and what God may be revealing through his life that we can apply to our own life and time. So let us listen now for the word of God. They had uh, just defeated in a miraculous way the, the army of the Israelites, a little band of 300 soldiers overcoming a uh, force of 135,000 according to this book and uh, this takes place immediately after the victory then the Israelites said to Gideon rule over us you and your son and your grandson also for you have delivered us out of the hand of Midian and Gideon said to them I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you the Lord will rule over you then Gideon said to them let me make a request of you each of you give me an earring he has taken as booty. For the enemy had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. We will willingly give them, they answered. So they spread a garment and each threw into it an earring he had taken as booty. The weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 pound, shekels of gold apart from the crescents and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and the collars that were on the necks of the camels. Gideon made an ephod of it and he put it in his town in Ophrah and all Israel prostituted themselves to it there and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the Is Israelites and they lifted up their heads no more. So the land had rest Forty years in the days of Gideon. Jeroboam, son of Joash, went to live in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons his own, of his own offspring, for he had many wives. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. Then Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. As soon as Gideon died... The Israelites relapsed and prostituted themselves with the Baals, making Baal Berith their God. The Israelites did not remember the Lord their God, who had rescued them from the hand of all of their enemies on every side, and they did not exhibit loyalty to the house of Jeroboam, that is, Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this morning we are drawing to a close our look at the life of this man named Gideon, a judge in Israel so long ago. We began by considering his call, an audacious call to be the deliverer of Israel. And when the angel appeared to him and told him that God had chosen him, that God was with him, which he couldn't believe in the first place, and that he was going to be a mighty warrior, he found all of this incredulous. Uh, he was not looking for this assignment and didn't want to take it and found, tried every way he could imagine to get out of it but in time he found that he couldn't get out of it he could only get up and obey what the Lord was calling him to do and in his obedience he discovered that the Lord was faithful and did in fact make him a mighty warrior we looked after the first session at the fleece test that he tried to use to assure himself that this was God's mission for him uh, despite the fact that he didn't want it or found it hard to believe that he could undertake what God was calling him to do. 
And we discussed how the fleece tests really didn't prove anything to Gideon uh, after they were conducted. And we talked about this whole business of how do you prove anything in a religious or spiritual sense? How can you prove that God exists or that God is love or that God forgives you? Sometimes we have to simply act on what we believe and in the acting we will discover whether or not it is true. So many of us believe that we have to understand in order to believe. And if we can't figure everything out, uh, then we won't believe. It has to be proven to us. That was an argument of St. Thomas Aquinas that you understand and then you believe. But Augustine said just the opposite. No, you believe and then you understand. It is in your faith and in your obedience that you discover the Word of God to be true. Last week we looked at uh, this mighty victory uh, that... Gideon led his troops into defeating the overwhelming force of the Midianites. And we talked about odds and ends. That if our end, if our purpose in life, our goal in life is to serve the will of God and the call of God, then the odds don't really matter. Because if God is on our side, if God is behind it, then it will be successful. And if God is not behind it, then our successes won't make it successful um, so God is in charge, and he uses us as his instruments to do his work within the world. So right on the heels of this amazing victory, we come to today's lesson, and uh, it's a disappointing lesson uh, for many reasons, but the most, Frederick Beekner, the interpreter, uh, said that the best thing the judge Gideon ever did and the worst mistake he ever made came within moments of each other. And you can found, find these in verses 23 and 24 of our lesson this morning. The strange thing that happens in this chapter, it's not because of something miraculous or unusual that God does. The strange thing is the action of Gideon himself. This uncharacteristic response to the victory of God. The best thing he did, the most noble thing at least that Gideon ever did was when the people came to him after the victory and they wanted to make him king on the spot, he said, I will not be a king over you, neither will my son or my grandson, because God will rule over you. He had the courage and the wisdom to know that only God could be the king, the ultimate authority in Israel. But then on the heels of that, he said, but what I would like is for you to contribute a golden earring Apparently it was fashionable in the desert in those days among the Ishmaelites for the men to wear golden earrings. And so, so many of them died in battle. They captured these earrings. And uh, Gideon says, if you would contribute each of you one golden earring. And there, it was not just the earrings, but the golden collars that were on the necks of the prize camels that were captured. And so this large amount of gold is a symbol for a project that Gideon has in mind. Now, what is that project? Um, he wanted, I'm going to say first, in all fairness to Gideon, this was not a malevolent thing. He hadn't had no evil intentions here. Uh, but he had a purpose in mind for the use of this gold. He wanted to fashion one incredibly beautiful ephod, E-P-H-O-D, an ephod. Now, let's be honest here. You wouldn't know an ephod if you saw one, would you? Me either. Me either. Bible scholars really aren't sure what an ephod is. They have their ideas. Most of them believe that it was something that was worn in the, by the priest in the temple for worship. 
maybe a vestment or a pouch or a something that could be used in worship. At any rate, it was a religious art object of some fashion, and perhaps Gideon hoped that this beautiful object would remind people of who their king was, who their God was, so that they wouldn't be led astray. Now, Gideon may have ended up being a splendid soldier, a mighty warrior, as God calls him, but in the end, he proved to be a very short-sighted priest because he lost sight of the deepest needs of his people and the real reason, the real purpose behind his calling to be a deliverer. It is this same Gideon who in chapter 6 earlier had taken up an axe in hand and destroyed the gods of the Baals. Now he becomes, even if unwittingly, the maker of an idol himself. He didn't set out to make an idol, but his effort became an idol. Invariably, what we value and love most in life is our idol or it's our God. As I said, his intentions may have been honorable, but the sad truth is that he failed to realize whenever we human beings fasten God to something that we have fashioned, then very soon that object will become an idol. So it appears that in time, this effort, as beautiful as it was, became an indispensable part of the people's worship. And then after that, it became the reason for their worship. So much so that the scripture says they played the harlot after it. They began to worship and serve this effort more than the living God. This was just another form of idolatry. And the effort became an idol for Israel. In the Heidelberg Catechism, the question is asked, I think it's question 95, what is idolatry? And the answer given is this. Idolatry is to imagine or to possess something in which to put one's trust in place of or beside the God who has revealed himself in his word. And John Calvin wrote that the human mind is a perpetual factory of idols. And he also argued that there are two possibilities for human beings in life. Either we have faith in the living God or we serve an idol. That exhausts the possibilities. So, if you are not serving God in your life, if you're not worshiping God above all else, then there's some idol out there that you are serving. Because everybody serves somebody or something. And if it's not God, it will be something else that is taking the place of God in your life. Now, I'm not going to belabor this point of idolatry. I've mentioned it in a previous sermon and in our Sunday school class on Daniel, we've been talking about idolatry a good bit. But the, the suffice it to say that while we often think of idolatry as an archaic thing that happened with the ancients long ago, it is as fresh and as familiar as the headlines in the daily paper. Just a few years ago, 2009, we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the birth of John Calvin, kind of our forebear in the Reformed and Presbyterian school of faith. And it was Calvin that wrote so much about idolatry. In fact, one of his major contributions to Protestant theology is his polemic against idolatry. He takes idolatry very seriously, as each of us should. What are our idols today? All kinds of things. Money is an idol for many people. 
They think it's their wealth that defines who they are. They serve that wealth above all else. And so they can make even the wealth that has been entrusted to them by God uh, as an idol. It takes the place of God. But it's not the only idol out there. There are many others. The church can be an idol for some. We can make our denomination, our systematic theology systems, uh, our idols and bow before them. We can make our creeds, our work, our professions, our beautiful church and its facilities into nothing less than an idol. Even the good things, good things like love of country or devotion to one's family or the gift of sexuality, all of these can be turned into an idol if they come to matter more than we love and worship God. And whenever we restrict the living God to some person, place, or thing, whenever we so identify God with something that our relationship to God depends on it, then we are not far from idolatry ourselves. And therefore, people like us can ill afford to moralize about the ancients who served these other idols because we are just like them in so many ways. Now, unlike the Greeks and Romans, we don't actually give names to our gods uh, as they did. Plutus was the god of wealth and prosperity, and many people bow before that god today, whether they know it or not. Cupid or Venus, the goddess of love, Mercury and Hermes, the god of sport, of business and commerce. Minerva is the goddess of wisdom, and Venus, the goddess of beauty. Mars, for some, is their god. It is the god of power and the god of war. They may not have known her name as Artemis or Diana, but when I served a church in Vicksburg, Mississippi, it was hard to find a man in church on the first day of deer season who owned a rifle. They were all worshiping before the goddess of the hunt, Diana. They would never have acknowledged that, but in many ways, some of them did. I had one of them tell me one year who was an avid hunter and a friend of mine, he said he wasn't in a position to make a pledge to the church this year. But I did notice that in the course of the year, he took these extravagant hunting and fishing expeditions all over the map, to Africa, to Alaska, and all kinds of places. But he wasn't in a position to make a commitment to the church. Now, in trying to assess the life and ministry of this judge called Gideon, I think one needs to compare the beginning of his life and work with the end of it. What difference did the life and the work of Gideon make? If you recall the story back in chapter 6, when he learned that his people were in virtual slavery to the Midianites, um, he also learned that the problem was not the Midianites. The problem was that the people were worshiping other gods. They were forgetting what the living God had done for their ancestors and for them bringing them out of Egyptian captivity through the Red Sea and into this land of their own. And they would have been warned when entering the land, don't worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are dwelling, because I will not have other gods before me. And after they were enslaved, of course, they cried out to God for deliverance. He responded in mercy and delivered them. And then there would be this time of peace and silence, and they'd fall back into their own habits and ways. But listen to the end of Gideon's life as it's recorded in chapter 8. 
Gideon made an effort of it and he put it in his own town in Ophrah. And all Israel, Israel prostituted themselves to it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the Israelites and they lifted up their heads no more. So the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. As soon as Gideon died, the Israelites relapsed and prostituted themselves with the Baals once again, making Baal Berith their god. The Israelites did not remember the Lord their God, who had rescued them from the, from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not exhibit loyalty to the house of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, for all the good that he had done to them. And so if one compares the beginning of Gideon's life with the end of it, I think you have to conclude that for all intents and purposes, Gideon's ministry and his work made little permanent change in the hearts and minds of the people of Israel. They just fell back into their old ways once again. Virtually they were the same. Now, one could argue, I'm sure, that had it not been for Gideon, maybe things would have been worse, and that certainly could be true. But the fact is, certainly Gideon wanted his life, his work, to count for more than it did, apparently. And you and I want that for ourselves, don't we? We want that for our church. We want to think that the life is going to be better around us because of us. That Greensboro, Greensboro is going to be a better place to live, a happier, healthier, more just, more compassionate place than it would be otherwise because of this church in the 600 block of Elm Street. And we want to think that our own lives are here to make a difference somehow. And you and I have an advantage that Gideon did not have. But we have all of this history that we can learn from. We have Jesus Christ and the gospel that he has given to us and the gift of the Holy Spirit. You and I ought to be able to see with far greater clarity and insight just what the nature of the human predicament is and how to address it. Because the problem for Israel was not the Midianites. The problem was their own sin and selfishness and arrogance to worship something other than the living God. And that's still the problem with humanity today. The problem the gospel addresses and the problem you and I are to address as well. When we choose to go against God, against the ways of God, we suffer the consequences of that as we were discussing in our Sunday school class this morning. And God's lone solution for the problem of humanity, our human sin and corruption, is the free gift of grace and mercy in Jesus Christ, his son. It does little good to try to deal with the symptoms while you're ignoring the disease. When the Midianites were driven out of Canaan, only half the job was done because they didn't begin to worship and serve the God who had delivered them. And they could expect, as they experienced, that there would be another oppressor just around the corner. And that is precisely what happened in the days of Abimelech. Jesus tells us in the 11th chapter of Luke that when the demonic is removed from us, it needs to be replaced with the divine. That it's not enough simply to rid yourselves of the evil that you do. Because how will you replace that with the good and the glory that God called you to? In fact, in the story that Jesus tells in that 11th chapter, he says, if a person has a demon removed for them, 
and does nothing to prepare it. He just cleans the place for either the demon to return or to bring seven other demons with them. And you can end off in worse state after your deliverance than before if it doesn't draw you closer to God and to God's purposes for you and for all of life. Yet so many Christians kind of characterize their Christianity by the evil that they avoid. I don't drink or smoke or chew or I don't associate with people, people who do. You've heard that, haven't you? <laughs> Does that make you a Christian? <clears throat> Some of you know I have a kind of odd hobby of collecting epitaphs, uh, especially more humorous or more unique epitaphs, but I also write epitaphs to illustrate points of messages sometimes. So I, I wrote this one that kind of points to what I'm arguing in this right now. And it goes like this. Here lie the remains of Rutherford Schwartz, killed by train while riding his horse. He never gambled his money away or got drunk or rowdy on the Sabbath day. He made no bad debts, never beat his wife, never murdered or cheated or lied in his life. His life I would really love to endorse, but alas, I could say the same things of his horse. <laughs> What's the good that you're accomplishing in your life? How's the world going to be different? How's the church going to be stronger because you've walked these aisles and you've served in this community? Like Gideon, we may be tempted just to treat the symptoms and not the disease, but we need to look into our own hearts and lives and ask of ourselves, who is it that I truly worship? Who is it that I am here to serve? And what evidence will there be that I am serving the living God? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.